welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton, your host. Today we have back with us David Ramirez. He is the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Union Grove, Wisconsin. Welcome back, Ramirez. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's great. Um, so a few weeks ago, we I uh, let's see here. I interviewed. Ryan Leslie about just the Psalms and you know making the Psalms part of our kind of daily use again. And so I wanted to bring you on to talk about the imprecatory Psalms and really to kind of begin to wrap our head around what their use was and then hopefully eventually talk about in what way do Christians make use of this even now. So what are imprecatory psalms? Sure. So um, an imprecatory psalm is a psalm that either is mostly or has um, some aspect of, uh, it, you know, a, a prayer or a call uh, to, to God to bring his judgment uh, and or curse upon someone. And I, and I say mm-hmm. someone very uh, vaguely or generally because, uh, you know, obviously as we get into some specific imprecatory psalms, uh, we'll see who that someone is. But basically it's to invoke evil upon or curse. And, and I don't mean evil like satanic evil, but rather harm, you know, to invoke a curse or, uh, as I said before, God's judgment uh, upon someone. And we'll we'll get into the someone later. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of imprecatory psalms, but as as we were discussing in preparation uh, for for this interview, uh, I you know we, we were talking about like what is the standard list of imprecatory psalms, and I guess I was under the assumption that there was a standard list, and it seems like there isn't. <laughs> so I, I I learned something just researching uh this uh, a little bit more in depth and there's there's very varied lists out there but th- there's some psalms that are are some of the most famous ones such as uh 69 uh psalm 109 uh psalm 139 and then there's a whole host of other psalms as well that have uh a, a, an imprecatory, imprecatory aspect or section within a yeah. broader psalm so I mean that that's what that's what an imprecatory psalm is. Okay, so it's calling judgment or curse upon someone, probably an enemy of some sort. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yes, uh, yeah. Let, let's say that to call uh, a prayer that calls down God's judgment and curse upon an enemy. And again, that's still sort of vague and on purpose because that's really where we need to delve into who's enemy and why are you calling this down and in what spirit and with what kind of heart. But that's, okay. that's the general understanding. Yeah. Okay. Um, and maybe you'll want to deal with this after we 
kind of look at some of those other questions that you just raised. But how how does this kind of uh, jibe with our Lord's, you know, saying to pray for our enemies, or even what we learn uh, with regard to, say, the second commandment, that, you know, we should not use God's name to curse or harm our neighbor. How do, how do these play out? And that we have these imprecatory psalms in the Bible, and then also these specific commands, what's going on uh, in, I guess, in, in the meantime or in between those things? What, where's the disconnect in our minds or understanding? Yeah, and, and I'm glad that you, the, that you phrased it that way because I do think that there should not be a disconnect and that, that there should not be a, um, uh, an idea that, that these various ideas or these various stances towards our enemies are inherently opposed to each other. Um, <clears throat> uh, th- those two ideas being, uh, you know, us calling down uh, curses or judgment upon enemies. And also that, well, let, let's just stick with what Jesus says, pray for your enemies. And mm-hmm. those two things shouldn't be opposed at all. Um, both are true. As you said, these these Psalms are in the Bible. These are hymns. I mean, these are hymns mm-hmm. of the church, of the Old Testament church. And unless we want to be, you know, Marcionite Gnostics, this is scripture. And uh, this is for our um, edification, and we should not be scared of these psalms. Uh, I mean, that, that's always the, the the impulse or the temptation to say, "Ooh, that's a that's a really tricky part of scripture. Let's stay away from that." And I'm not not so comfortable about that, so let's stay away from it. No, I mean, we we gotta we gotta jump right in and and deal with it, so to speak, mm-hmm. and deal with it with an open heart and an open mind, knowing that this was written for our edification and to shape our faith. And so both are true. The Christian does not have to choose and shouldn't choose between those two truths um, that we should call upon the Lord to deliver us from evil, to stop our enemies. Uh, And when I say our enemies, our enemies as Christians, our enemies as the church. And so a Christian and the church should always agree with her Lord. And so, uh, and I guess we're jumping ahead already and that's fine To No, that's good. Yeah. what, What enemies are we calling God's judgment down upon? Not our personal enemies or our, uh, you, you know, you know, imprecatory psalms are not to be invoked, or we, we are not to call out to God just to settle a private or personal grudge, but rather when we judge with right judgment, as John says, uh, excuse me, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, judge with right judgment. And if we judge with right judgment that something is abhorrent or evil or wicked or wrong, um, we want that to be stopped. And so Yes, it might involve us. It might be personal or uh, specific or particular to our situation, but we aren't doing it just as kind of a, uh, what would be a good word, egotistical, you know, self-centered, uh, self, uh, you know, uh, centered reaction 
towards yeah, that We're not that threat, avenging ourselves or finding vengeance. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But we are saying vengeance is the Lord's, and Lord, you promised to defend us and to defend the truth and to defend the church, and evil is being done. I mean, this really should flow from the uh, uh, the Lord's prayer and, and deliver us from evil, right? I mean, that that's really yes. what the imprecatory psalms are all about, delivering us from evil. So Jesus teaches both. Um, we see both in the Old Testament. We see both out of the lips of our Lord that, yes, we should uh, pray for deliverance from evil, that God would smite the oppressors of the church and stop them and thwart their plans. But also, we should pray for our enemies, because as long as <clears throat> you know we're in this life and our enemies are still literally breathing we should at, at both at the same time both want them to be stopped and god to uh seek his uh vengeance and to judge them rightly and also that we would want them to be converted we don't have to pick between those two things uh you know if if there was um uh, a country uh, invading our our land, invading the United States of America, and uh, they were sweeping through and destroying, pillaging, raping, murdering, doing all these horrible things. Um, we don't know what those people's souls, uh, you know, their ultimate fate is. Um, so we still should pray for their conversion, that they would stop, that they would repent, that they would turn from their wicked ways. But also we should pray that the Lord destroy them and smite them and stop them. Uh, and uh, that both things are good. So would an example of this in the Old Testament be how our God dealt with Pharaoh while the Israelites were in Egypt? You know, bringing the plagues in the hopes that right he would let his people go, that he would relent and repent, but knowing that this would only that his law and his word would only further harden his heart against him. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I agree with the, the the point that you're making. I would just slightly, uh, you can consider it a friendly amendment. I hope that uh, <laughs> that by that time God was using it purposefully, as he says to Moses, "I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart." So I think the time had passed for God. Uh, hoping or uh, or or giving Pharaoh any more chances, he had already handed him over, and now he was hardening him to make an example of him. But I'm glad you brought up this point because only God knew that, and only Moses knew that because of God. We, from our limited human, uh, you know, viewpoint and capacity for 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 that knowledge, we assume that while there's still life, there's still hope. God, in His infinite wisdom, may know otherwise about who is. Um, already uh, handed over, and of course he knows the ultimate fate of of, of everyone. So, but no, I yeah, I, I think the general point is is absolutely correct. That um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> you mentioned, and I'm sure that we'll you know go further down along this way. You mentioned that there are two responses when we come up to the understanding that we have in the Bible, both people praying for um, curses upon their enemies and uh, and for God's judgment and wrath to be meted out upon their enemies, and then yeah. also 
this uh, this teaching in the New Testament and elsewhere, but from our Lord about uh, praying for them and uh, not having vengeance, and that our two responses are either to reject the one of the teachings. Uh, or just hide from the teaching that we don't like. So reject the teaching we don't like, or yep. hide from it. What what causes us to either reject it or hide? Is it because we are not uh, letting our hearts and minds be brought into subject into subjection to God's word, uh, or perhaps maybe the other side of it is: Are we letting our hearts and minds being brought into subjection? subjection to something else yeah i i think it's i think it's both um i mean i think that you can fall off the horse both ways i mean obviously there's uh i mean you can all of us can conceive or think of examples of when someone is totally overtaken by self-centered vengeance um where they even say um if if I don't want that person to repent who's done wrong, I want them to burn in hell. I, and, and they're not speaking of that from the viewpoint of, I agree with you, God, that those whom you judge as your eternal enemies who have rejected your word and rejected the Messiah and rejected your, 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 you know, the forgiveness of sins poured out for all mankind. But, they're not agreeing with God in that sense, but they are saying no, because this person did this to me. I don't care that Jesus even died for that sin. I want them to rot in hell forever. That's uh, the biblical example would be Jonah. He would rather not just die, but also get sent to hell himself rather than have the Ninevites go to heaven. So I think that'd be a good example of sinful wrath unrighteous anger consuming someone um and and that is uh wrapped up in a in a self-centeredness and it's not judging with right judgment not judging according to god's judgment because in those imprecatory psalms when they're calling upon god's judgment um they're agreeing with god's judgment they're saying you know you obviously judge this to be sinful you have already judged these people to be your enemies we agree please do something about it to relieve us of our uh you, you know pain and suffering and all, all of these other things and also even if you use the word curse i mean you brought up in the commandment we shouldn't you know curse or swear or lie or deceive by his name you, you know um but here uh, again, uh, just like with anger, there's righteous anger and unrighteous anger, dependent upon whether it agrees with God's judgment or not. So too, God does curse. And so if we agree with God's judgment or God's curses um, upon sin and sinners, then that's different than misusing his name. Or or else these uh psalms wouldn't make any sense they would actually be blasphemous songs that the old testament church was singing and that god gave to us for our edification and our understanding and that's of course absurd and wrong and so we have to make that distinction between uh you know wickedly using god's name for self-centered cursings of uh of our enemies who we just are overcome with personal and private hatred against versus agreeing with God's judgment, agreeing with what God says should be cursed and stopped. So that would be falling off the horse on one side and um, 
that is a danger. Um, and it's a danger we should be very aware of. But on the other hand, there's a danger that I think is unfortunately all too common and probably more common in our day and age, which is to, which is to, uh, so if the first way is rejecting, um, the, the teaching of our Lord to pray for our enemies, to pray for their um, conversion and to pray for their ultimate well-being and eternal life. Then the, then falling mm-hmm. off the other side, which I believe is more common in our um, day and age, because we live in a, in a soft day and age. And so our, our temptations are more towards softness than over harshness. And um, that's to reject the imprecatory Psalms and to think that it's always wrong to be angry or to hate or to be jealous, all things that God describes uh, about himself as doing. And so to only pray for our enemies. Yeah, I know it's absurd, right? You know, it's always wrong to hate. Well, okay. Generally speaking, if you're talking to a four-year-old, yeah, okay. Um, You know, I might not critique someone who says, yeah, you shouldn't hate people. Okay, that's generally true. But I mean, if that's the extent of the lesson, then you're not reading the Bible. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, even, we, we then, should... even then the four-year-old will say, but it's, it's okay to hate the bad guys, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that, that's classic pietism, right? You, you, mm. can't, you can't ever be jealous. Well, I mean, if I'm a husband or a wife, shouldn't I be jealous for the affections of my spouse? As a father or a mother, shouldn't I be jealous for the affections of my children? I'm not talking about being some psycho micromanager who never wants anyone else to talk to them. But I'm, you know, I mean, our Lord is jealous for us, his bride, the church, as he should be, because he knows we're safe with him. He knows that we do owe him honor and obedience and love and faith and all of these things. And he, he should want that. I mean, he made us his bride. He doesn't want us whoring with the uh, the other gods or the gods of our own making. And so falling off the other side would be to reject the idea that there is righteous anger, that there is righteous hatred that agrees with God's judgment, that there is righteous uh, jealousy and righteous judgment that agrees with God. And so uh, falling off the other side of the horse would be, well, let's only pray for our enemies and pray for their well-being and pray for their uh, conversion, but never pray that they get stopped because we want to be nice. And um, (laughs) I mean, this is a very big modern problem. I mean, I I find it absolutely ridiculous that the imprecatory Psalms are mostly cut out of the hymnal. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, if we have room for hymns, how about the divinely inspired hymns of the Old Testament? I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, I love our heritage of our good Lutheran hymns, but I mean, these are the Psalms. This is the Word of God. Why, why don't I mean, not having the whole Psalter is insane. I, I don't know what was in people's heads to save what, well, like four pages. Yes, especially considering what hymns actually made it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's some ones that. Probably should not be there. If, if I could just say one other thing about not falling off both sides of the, or either side of the horse, you know, it, it is very telling of which risks we are willing to take as a church or as a culture. And I find it very interesting that um, nobody goes around and says, well, I know that Jesus says, love your family, 
but you know what? We're, we're all sinners and we all tend towards uh, idolatry. And because you might turn your family into an idol, you shouldn't love your family. That's just too big of a risk. We can't do that. We just got to be way super careful about that. I mean, we would all laugh that person out of the, out, out, you know, out, out of the room. And yet at the same time, we're supposed to be zealous. We're supposed to be righteously angry, you know, uh, you know, quick to listen, uh, slow to speak, slow to get angry. But anger and hatred and jealousy and zeal, yes, should we be careful not to take those in sinful and wrong ways? Absolutely. Will we screw it up sometimes? Absolutely. But these things are necessary uh, risks that we have to take because that's what we're commanded to be. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I mean, this, this is what God calls us to do and to be as Christians. And, you know, we, we don't talk like this when, when it comes to other things. I mean, modern, soft Christians never get worried about folks being, oh, too kind or too gentle or too nice. Hey, we better get rid of this gentleness and kindness and niceness because it might take us in bad ways. Oh, no. I mean, I think this just betrays that we really live not just in a soft, indulgent time, but also these 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 are kind of like feminine instincts gone wild. And... Um, I mean, I think you see that with uh, with uh, a lot of modern men in the West, in, in America, that they are effeminate. They have effeminate tendencies because they uh, they choose, but also they've been taught to, uh, oh, the real big danger is never get angry or never get jealous or never hate. And it's like, come on, guys. I mean, if you don't hate something, if you don't hate that means you don't understand the nature of evil. That means you don't agree with God. And I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, to me, it just becomes very simple. Um, it, it, and it's very scary that you could put a mic in front of many men's faces right now and say, would you be willing to kill to stop people from harming your, your wife and your children? And I bet a lot of men would pause. And that's insane to me. If you're not willing to fight for something, that means you don't actually care about something. If you're not willing to fight for pure doctrine or fight for your family or fight for your church or fight for your neighbors, that means you do not love them correctly and rightly and as deeply as you should. I mean, it's just crazy. And and I do think that's one of the reasons why we have so many femi men running around these days. It's bad. Yeah, you can only... You can only hate or be jealous for something if you have the converse, which is love and desire to protect, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so those who are unwilling to hate don't actually love. And that's really what I think in our modern day needs to be continually said. You don't really love uh, because you do not hate and you are not jealous. Well, right. And, and, and that's, the, I mean, th- this is a trick of the devil where he comes at us from different vectors and he's great about mm. spinning truths and pushing them into places where they aren't true anymore. Um, so as to throw us off our game in different ways, like a boxer who, who does feints and stuff like that. I mean, you know, should be, we be concerned about hate or anger or jealousy? Absolutely. But then the devil tries to twist that rightful concern into 
um, you know, disallowing those things, which of course is a misrepresentation of the scriptures as well. And I mean, that, that, that is very, very, uh, dangerous for us. Um, and, and it causes us to become lukewarm. I mean, obviously it, I mean, what the devil wants us to do is to just straight out love what God hates and hate what God loves. Right. I mean, that, that, that would be, um, a huge goal of the devil, but if that's not what he can get. And in some ways, what I'm about to say is actually even more dangerous is that he, he would make us lukewarm, you know, as, yeah. as you said, if, if you don't love, if you don't hate something, that means you don't, if, if, if you don't hate the destruction of good things, that means that you don't really love those good things as deeply as you should. So the devil yeah. wins whenever he gets us to not judge with right judgment, whether that means we disagree with God flat out zealously or whether we are lukewarm and just kind of whatever. Yeah. yeah. When I was yeah. studying or doing some readings for preparation for the paper that I presented at Bugenhagen last summer, one of the things that uh, Pascal said was he'd rather have someone who out, out hated God than someone who just was lukewarm. Yeah. Because you can turn someone that's moving in the opposite direction easier yes. than someone yeah. who's just sitting still. Walter said and, the same thing. Go ahead. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say Walter said the same thing that he would rather have a, a zealous atheist than a lukewarm, um, you know, not really believer. Christian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, just like having a car that's stationary. You can turn a car that's moving around, but getting yeah. the car moving to begin with is the difficult thing. That's why God spits, what, the Laodiceans out of his mouth, right? Is, is, yeah. Isn't it the Laodiceans? Yeah. In Revelation. Yes. Yeah. Um, since we're on this talk about uh, love and hate and, and zeal, um, it, would it be okay for me to read a Luther quote? Um, yeah. Now, he's, he's talking about uh, Psalm number 69, which I, I know that we're going to get into, but may, maybe this would get us there. Um, here, here's what, what Luther says. This is in Luther's works, uh, volume 10 in the American edition. Um, so he's, he's speaking about uh, Psalm 69, and I can even give you a, a page reference. Um, yeah, this is volume 10, page 365 and following. So he says this, he says, zeal is nothing else than the wrath, hatred, displeasure of love or wrathful love. I, I don't think I put the right emphasis on that. Let me read it again. Zeal is nothing else <laughs> than the wrath, hatred, displeasure of love or wrathful love. Therefore, the objects of zeal are only those who are also the objects of love. Zeal is nothing else than hatred, ill will, or displeasure of evil or vice in what we love. It's kind of, uh, just to pause for a moment, it's kind of like when you see your child doing something uh, wicked and you hate that that's in them. You hate that they're doing it. Why do you hate it so much? It's because you love them. It's precisely because you love them so much and you don't want them to be doing that wicked thing and, you know, harming their own soul. Um, 
Luther goes on, therefore no one can be zealous except one who loves. Zeal presupposes love and is directed to the same object as love. Love is that which loves and promotes the good in the object, while zeal is that which hates and removes the evil in it. Therefore, Christ is called a zealous God in the prophets, Exodus 20 and Exodus 34, because he especially loves righteousness and hates wickedness in his believers. But the zeal of the house of God is more excellent than other kinds of zeal, just as divine love is more excellent than other kinds of love. For it is characteristic of divine love to love and desire the good for someone, not any kind of good, nor for any kind of purpose, but eternal good and for spiritual welfare. So divine or spiritual zeal involves hating or not wanting evil for anyone, not just any kind of evil, nor for any purpose, but spiritual evil for eternal damnation. For often, so that his beloved might not have those evils, he imposes all the evils of the flesh and the world upon him. Thus God is zealous for his saints, while he imposes the world's ills upon them, so that the evils of the spirit may not harm them. For that reason the world loves and hates destructively, and in a way opposite to that in which God loves and hates. And I, I think that that is exactly what we see in the Proverbs, where it says, you know, he that uh, does not discipline his son hateth him. Why? Because he doesn't yeah. love him enough to actually bring the rod to his son and drive out the the, the evil uh, because he doesn't love him enough. And I do think that's a problem in our time. I mean, you, you have constant calls for, um, you know, oh, don't get, don't get too too zealous don't get don't get too uh, angry <laughs> you know but it's never don't get too nice don't get too indulgent and uh, luther says it well i think he he goes on to say such zeal has grown cold in our time as has love even the lord seems to have removed his zeal from the church as he threatens through ezekiel 16 my jealousy shall depart from you and i will be angry with you no longer this is something more horrible than his wrath it reminds me of, you know, when you are counseling a couple who's married and they're going through marital strife or problems or whatnot, um, you know, if they are yelling at each other, if they're angry at each other, that's way better than if they just don't even care to talk, talk anymore. Yeah. yeah. That means the love has grown so cold. Because if you're angry at each other, that means you still care about each other and you care about each other's opinions, even if you're hot, stinking, unrighteously angry, right? You know, but you still care. You still care about it. But people are just like, yeah, I just don't really like that person. Eh, whatever. I mean, yeah, that's worse. That's worse. Yeah, it is a... Um it is a sign of the times that we're kind of at a point where not only do we have nothing that we really want to live for, but we don't have anything that we want to die for. There's nothing that we really love. There's nothing that we really hate. We are just kind of blah. Well, speak for yourself. I'm not blah, but I, I know. Well, I'm just joking. I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you always do this to me. All right. Yeah. Well, well I felt personally personally attacked so i had to defend myself okay um <laughs> and only someone who was like that would feel that way that's um, right all that's right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to jump into uh, psalm 69 is that where we're at yeah that's what i was going to say so oh, okay it seems like in these psalms it's never just calling down 
God's judgment or wrath or even cursing. There's always a whole lot of other portions that the psalmist or the one praying or singing this is coming to grips with. And it seems as though it's also coming to grips with not only agreeing with what God has to say about what is worthy of hate or worthy of love, but also so like who his enemies are, but also in what way is he also an enemy of God, like as an individual? So there's almost seems like there's a crossover between penitence or a psalm of confession as well as psalm of imprecation. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I, I Because if we're going to be honest with ourselves and if we're going to judge with right judgment, then we're not just going to judge wrong things and injustices that other people do or are involved in, but also judge ourselves. And if we judge ourselves, then, you know, the truth is in us, as the scriptures say, and then we can do both things. We can say, I I repent and uh, I love the forgiveness of the Lord and please forgive me as I also forgive others of their trespasses and I do want them to be converted. I do want them to be in heaven no matter what vile, nasty, evil thing that they have done, even to me personally. And yet, uh, Lord, you have taught me that what they do is wrong, so please deliver me from this evil. Smite my enemies. Stop them uh, from this. Not because of personal vengeance, but because this is wrong. But even though... um, I, I totally agree with you that that confession and the imprecatory aspect of these psalms uh, go hand in hand. I don't think that that is as I mean it is woven together in sixty nine, but since it's a messianic psalm, I think that um, this is Jesus uh, acknowledging that not his personal sins are and iniquities are around him, but th- these are the sins of the whole world that are on him. So I guess I would just. I would say that um, uh, I, I, I agree with the, with the interpretation uh, that 69 is messianic. I mean, are, are you with me on that or I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. So you're saying that the things that are being confessed here are a recognition that he is surrounded by all this evil. Is that how I'm understanding what you're saying? Well, and also that he has, put it upon himself as the scapegoat, as the Messiah. Okay. So when he talks about iniquities, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, verse 5. Um, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. I don't think that that is Jesus confessing personal sin, but he, ha- but he who had no sin, as St. Paul says, became sin. So, I mean, this is him uh, talking about the iniquity that he has placed upon his own uh, shoulders. That's how tightly he identifies as being the one who bears the sin of the world. Yeah. But that's not to defeat your point that when we pray these ourselves as, 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 as Psalms, we should, we as Christians, as sinful men should, should indeed uh, wrap up our own confession with, with the, with the calling of judgment against sin as well. Okay. So how does Psalm 69 teach us then to pray these imprecations? Where does it lead us to? How does it demonstrate what you've already talked about primarily, which is 
agreeing with God about our enemies and not making it personal vengeance or... Sure. Uh, um, So Psalm 69 being a messianic psalm, this is the righteous Messiah suffering for the sake of us and for our sins in our stead, atoning, um, you know, becoming an all-atoning sacrifice, atoning for the sins of the world. And yet... His enemies, he knows, even though he has atoned for his enemies' sins, he also knows that they are his eternal enemies in the sense that they spit on him, they will not repent, and they are going to be enemies forever. And there, in uh, verse 22, you see the the you know these imprecatory phrases. So I'm I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, verse 22 in Psalm 69, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap, which is exactly what's going to happen. Um, What they are trying to do, uh, destroying the Messiah, um, causing him to suffer, is actually going to be exactly their undoing because they are acting as children of the devil and following the father of lies and under the dominion and domination of sin as slaves. And yet what they are doing by attacking the Messiah actually is going to be God's greatest victory, the redemption of mankind. And so let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Um, Yes, those who refuse to repent, like Pharaoh, you know, they need to be shown as examples, um, and they need to be uh, brought low. Uh, pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. So again, this is not about um, some private grudge where we are just trying to get even, but it's judging with right judgment according to God's judgment. Um, pour out your indignation. Let your burning anger overtake them. And again, Jesus knows who is going to be uh, the eternal enemies of God, those who uh, have rejected the all-atoning sacrifice that he is uh, making in the psalm, or it's being spoken about in the psalm. Uh, May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded." Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. And that's the part that I think really disturbs people. Where, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. I thought God always forgives. Here, Jesus in the psalm is saying, may they have no acquittal from you. And then the next verse, it's even more devastating without understanding it properly. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Yeah, I don't blame people for being disturbed by that phrase. I, I or phrase is, I know I was when I first read them uh, as, as a young adult, yet I, I do think that we should understand it aright, that wh- what enemies are being prayed against? These are the enemies who have steadfastly rejected uh, the word of the Lord. Um, so it, I, I'd like to read a, a little uh, quote from Kretzmann. Um, yeah, you, you know he he says these uh, these people that that is that are being spoken of, they are those who by their own fault 
would not become partakers of the salvation which was gained also for them. This isn't denying the all-atoning work on the cross. This this is not denying that God does not desire the the death of the wicked, you know? He doesn't desire that. Yet the reality is is that people in their stubbornness and wickedness uh, reject the word of the Lord stubbornly unto damnation. And those are the people, those enemies of God, uh, that's who are being referred to here. Um, after that, verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. You know, uh, Kretzmann says, where the redemption of the Messiah would have entered their names for eternity. Um, that, of course, is God does not desire the death of the wicked, yet those who stubbornly reject him uh, will indeed perish. So to kind of interject here just a little bit, is what is happening then here a recognition that these evildoers could hold sway over current Christians or current believers, and the desire for that evil not to be meted out upon God's own righteous by faith so that they would also be led astray. So that this is a call for them to have mercy on really the believers by blotting out the enemies of believers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why all these passages about eternal separation between the righteous and the wicked, uh, you know, all these passages all throughout the Old and New Testament about judgment day we should look upon as beautiful gospel words because we should be confident because of the promise of christ not because of our own strength or merits but solely because of what he's done for us we should be confident that our names are written in the book of life because he has given us the gospel he's forgiven our sins he's washed us clean you know he, he he has he's done everything for us and in the end, we will be totally separated from wickedness. I mean, that's wonderful. We should be mm-hmm. looking forward to this. We should not be scared of the day of judgment. We should look at, upon that as a day of great relief and and rest. And so that's what's being talked about here, that those who are stubbornly hating the Lord, who will not accept his love, who will not receive his mercy and grace, who have decided, nope, I'm, I want to be with the devil. Well, then you're going to be with uh, the devil and his angels and in the fire that was prepared for them. It wasn't prepared for you, but if you choose to be with them, then that's where you'll be. But, but my little ones will be separated and safe from you and from, like you said, your persecutions and trying to drag them down and all that kind of stuff. Well, I guess... Yeah, I guess I was trying to, instead of thinking primarily that you're praying against your enemies, you're praying for the protection of your comrades, your the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, Yeah. deliver us from evil. Yeah, I mean, if if you're praying as a New Testament Christian, you, you better be able to link your prayer back somehow to one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer and. That's what the imprecatory psalms are all about. I don't think it's an either or, though. I, I do think it is you are praying against these people. You're agreeing with God's judgment against them. Um, 
but you're also like you said, yeah, you're saying bring us relief. You're yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't mean to indicate it wasn't either or, but sometimes if you give people a slightly different perspective on what they're praying for, uh, you're if you're praying for the deliverance of God's people from evil, you necessarily must be praying for the putting down of evil in our in our age, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you want God to protect you, that necessarily means he's going to, you know, knock some people around. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. That, uh, I, I think that, that really covers the specific imprecatory sections of uh, Psalm 69. And mm-hmm. verse 29 actually fits in perfectly with what, you, what you're bringing to bear, uh, where uh, the psalm says, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I mean, God separating the righteous from the wicked is our salvation, you know, that, yeah. that you know, he's saving us from that. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament do people say, save us from the Philistines, save us from the Moabites, save us from the Egyptians or the Babylonians. And then God sends a earthly savior a deliverer, you know, uh, there's, there, there's enemies on the other side of that equation. Um, and then yes. the yeah. end of this imprecatory Psalm is all about praising God. Why? Because he does bear his right arm. He does come down and he does fight for us and, and defeat his enemies and our enemies. Um, so yeah, is, is it okay if we turn to another Psalm? I, um, yeah, please do. Okay. Let's, let's go to, Psalm 139, I I think we've talked about how there is this righteous or pious or godly hatred that agrees with God's judgment. But I did want to point people to another kind of uh, disturbing uh, to some, or uh, if you're not thinking about it the right way, uh, passage in Psalm 39, which is another one of those psalms that has uh, an imprecatory character in it or uh, aspect. Um. So I, I want to start at 19, and um, and 19 starts out by saying, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. So again, this is not a psalm about, Hey, God, there's these people I don't like. Can you beat down on them? But rather, <laughs> it's saying... I view your enemies as my enemies because I'm your child. I'm part of your bride, the church. And so um, I, it, it's an expression of loyalty, actually. You know, your enemies, God, your enemies, O oh Lord, are my enemies. And I want you to deal with your uh, unrepentant, um, uh, stubborn, dug-in enemies that will not accept your mercy and your grace. Um, because again, he's not just, he, he's, he's not talking about those who, uh, you, you know, could be converted. I mean, or maybe, may, maybe he's praying both things at the same time, but that, that's not the point. The point is, is that these by all outward appearances are stubborn, hardened enemies of the gospel and of the Lord. Oh, men of blood, right? So first he says it generally that you would slay the wicked. Then he calls them men of blood. So they're murderous, they're bloodthirsty. And then also uh, he, he does not put up this laundry list of personal gripes, but rather they speak against you, 
you know, referring to God with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. They're blasphemers. They're enemies of the Lord. And then it, and then we get to this, this phrase that disturbs a lot of people. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And again, I count them my enemies because we are loyal to God. We are not just waking up and saying, I don't like this person. Um, I think I'm going to decide to hate him and call down God's curses upon them for no reason or for some self-centered reason. But no, you know, we look upon, uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't really want to get into really vile, nasty stuff, but I mean, think about the worst things, you know, people who prey upon children, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we should say, this is wicked. God, stop this. And if these people are not to be converted or if they refuse to convert or whatever, destroy them, stop them, smash them. You know, um, I, I mean, we should loathe people who pray and, and do horrible things to children. You know, we should loathe them. Now, again, as we started out, we should also pray for their conversion, right? We should. Because we're not God. We don't know that they're necessarily absolutely going to be his enemies forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But at the same time, if they are enemies of God, blasphemers by thought word and disgusting, you know, deed, then, Mm -hmm. then we should say, yes, these are those who have the hatred of God on them already. And I'm loyal to you, God. I am on your team. I agree with your judgment and your enemies are also my enemies. And so as you hate sin, and if a sinner refuses to repent, yes, God doesn't just hate the sin and love the sinner. That's while the the man is still alive and while there's life, there's still hope. But those who perish in all eternity indeed are hated by God. So what you're saying is, again, going back to what you've already said before, is that because we are lovers of God, and we agree with him, even when he says that he hates something, we agree with that hatred. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's something that comes up in Bible class, I'm sure, all the time for you, just like me and just like most pastors, that, you know, uh, a question from, uh, you know, someone who has obviously thought rather deeply about heaven will ask, Pastor, how will I be happy or okay with it in heaven when, you know, one of my loved ones, one of my siblings or parents or, you know, children has abandoned the faith and is in hell. How in the world could I still enjoy heaven? And, you know, the easier answer to give them is, oh, you'll have a mind wipe. You won't think about it. You won't know. You'll forget about it. But there's a much better answer. (laughs) You'll agree with God. You'll agree. You'll agree. You'll agree with his judgment. You will not only be okay with it, but you will also praise him that he separated you from your enemies. And and I, you know, obviously we can't wrap our heads around that in this life. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it hurts all of our hearts to think about loved ones who may well burn in hell for all of eternity. I mean, I shudder to think about it. 
but at the same time, the only reason why we can go on uh, with this or with anything else in this life is the fact that we actually trust our Heavenly Father who sent us Jesus Christ. You know, that we know that a God who has sent his only son to die for us and gives us the gift of the forgiveness of sins through his Holy Spirit is also going to wipe away every tear and he is going to give us peace and contentment even though we it's hard to even think about in this life and um you know that that's that's how we need to understand things we're going to agree with god because we're going to be righteous and holy like he is righteous and holy we're going to have the image of god in its fullness and in its completeness just like adam and eve did yet again yeah so do we have any I know we've already talked about some like Old Testament uh, biblical accounts where this comes into play. Do we have any like really solid biblical accounts from the Old Testament or even the New where this is happening, where this plays out, and we can see what's going on? Yeah, um, I, I think that there's a couple, and I think that um, uh, David and Goliath is a great one. Uh, first of all, it's a great one uh, because... David shows what his Christian duty is uh, more broadly, and it is not to only pray for the conversion of the Philistines. It's not only to uh, hope that that things work out, but also when called upon, he does not hesitate, and he goes out and he defends his people, and he defends his land, and he um, defends the honor of God, and he does that by killing Goliath and chopping his head off. And that was the Christian response, uh, you know, as a man of Israel, a very young man, but a man nonetheless. Um, and so here it, it's interesting where, you know, this this situation with Goliath is, is very, very clear. David has no personal interaction with Goliath before this. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I can't totally exclude it, but I think it's absurd to think otherwise. Uh, so, I mean, this isn't, I mean, it's very clearly not wrapped up in any type of personal vengeance or anything like that. He, he's not even there to, to fight, but he sees Goliath and he loves the Lord. And he recognizes that Goliath is an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of his people, and that he wants to stop him. And so uh, he says to Saul, because of course, Saul is uh, <laughs> is trying to talk him out of this. You know, you, you, you're just a, a big kid. You're going to get stomped on, David. Don't do it. And then David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And then David says, why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. God uh, David is identifying Goliath as not only his enemy, but it's God's enemy. And that's why David's fighting. You know, this attacker and blasphemer uh, is blaspheming the name of the Lord. And so he's going out to fight him because he's an enemy of God and of God's word and righteousness. So I, I think this is just a, a fabulous, clear-cut example of, uh, of, of David, obviously, in his spirit and in his mind and in his heart is is saying i'm gonna i'm gonna go chop that guy's head off i mean he's obviously praying to god that he gives him the strength to do this stuff i mean 
David's praying in precatory psalms right there. <laughs> uh, I mean, David wrote in precatory psalms, so I don't know which psalm exactly he was thinking of or what words he was using to pray, but it's obvious that, that that's what his mindset is. He is saying, God, mm -hmm. give me the strength to smite this enemy of yours and of ours, but this isn't some personal vengeance. This is, this is him being a hero, uh, yeah. a faithful hero. It reminds me of the prayer in the book, we, uh, we Were Soldiers and We Were Young. They made it into a movie with Mel Gibson, but just before they go over to Vietnam, uh, they pray because this, this one soldier is, his wife has just said that he, she's pregnant. And so he's going over trying to like figure out, how, how do I do this? I'm a father. I'm supposed to you know, yeah. protect life. And here, <laughs> the, the, they're, they're both Roman Catholic. And so they sit, they kneel down to pray. And he says, you know, you know, keep this young man safe and all this. And he goes, and, and Lord, don't listen to the prayers of those pagan commies that we're about to shoot or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, I'm sick of all these like school marms who are like, well, that's not very nice, you know? And it's like, oh, come on. That's what a soldier needs. That's what right. a man needs. That's what, a, frankly, a woman and a child need because we are all at war with Satan. We are all yeah. at war with temptation. I mean, don't you think there's a reason why God put into the Old Testament all of these accounts of battles and yet didn't pile on the specific details, but making sure that we had a, uh, you know, a martial mentality about our conflict with sin, death, and the devil. And why do you think St. Paul uses all this stuff? I, I mean, put on the whole armor of God. And, and he uses all these military and all of these athletic examples uh, so that we're in the right mindset. And you can't have the right mindset to go up against sin, death, and the devil, uh, you know, obviously, of course, in the strength of Christ and, you know, by his word um, and in his spirit. But you can't be in the right mindset if 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 you're scared to ever get angry. You, you know, it, it's, it's, I mean, what, what, what do these school marms expect of us to, to say, well, I, I will, I will not like sin. I will think it's wrong. I will fight against it, but never get angry. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Zeal for the house of the Lord shall consume me. You know, now that doesn't mean you lose control. You know, it's, it's a controlled thing. I mean, it's kind of like when you gear up for a race or a contest, you know, I mean, you gotta, you gotta get yourself hyped up. Um, you know, but, and you got to be ready, but at the same time, you have to be so controlled. So you, you aren't thrown off balance or anything like that. And, and obviously the Bible is teaching us how to get into that mindset to be ready and zealous and even risking hatred and jealousy and anger against the enemies of the Lord. It's just insane to think that we shouldn't have that mindset. I'm ranting. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I mean, no, it's, a, it's all right. The actual quote is, he says amen and then and then he says oh yes and one more thing dear lord about our enemies ignore their heathen prayers and help us blow those little bastards straight to hell oh man holy cow yeah well yeah uh, so maybe that was a little much well i think that's probably the equivalent of 
you know, do I not hate those who hate you? I mean, yeah, exactly. That's probably not what you want to pray every night because you probably will have a problem with hatred. And and I don't want to downplay yes. the danger of it, but there is a time and a place to pray those prayers. And yeah, I. But I do think it gets difficult when it hits closer to home. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. much easier for a David who is, I mean, he, he obviously has grown up knowing the Philistines are horrible and having them do horrible things to his extended clan and tribe. But I mean, he doesn't have some personal gripe with Goliath. Um, but I do think it gets harder when it becomes more personal. And that's, that's hard for a Christian to sort out because it's so hard to, uh, to, in, you know, disentangle the different threads of your, of your heart. How much of this is personal vengeance and private grudges and how much of this is me agreeing with the judgment of God. That's hard. Yeah. I, I think you asked for Old Testament examples. Um, I think another example that's really good is um, Samson, you know, and, and his death because Samson of course, ha, you know, is a, a very flawed hero. I mean, David was too, but not at not at this point. Um, you know, with Goliath. Um, but Samson, at the time of his death, um, of, of course, he has slept with a prostitute. He's been consorting with Delilah uh, for seemingly an extended time. He's grown arrogant. Um, you know, he views his strength and his power as kind of a private possession. He's playing with fire. Um, it's bad news. And so finally, as we all know, he, he gets captured by the Philistines because he gives away his secret. Um, and he's shaved uh, by them. And then they pluck out his eyes. And so um, just to set the stage a little bit uh, for for the listeners who might not remember this incident after Samson is captured and the Philistines pluck out his eyes, they, um, before, before they presumably are going to execute him, they are going to play with him. Uh, you know, they, they're going to taunt him and they're going to mess with him. And I'm glad that the scriptures don't go into the vile details that they undoubtedly tortured him, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, by all of these nasty means, but in between messing with him and, you know, using him for sport, they let him go rest on these pillars in the middle of their nasty heathen temple. And uh, Samson, he calls out to the Lord, and it's an imprecatory prayer. might not be an imprecatory psalm, but it's an imprecatory prayer. Um, uh, This is uh, Judges uh, 16, uh, verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, you know it—it's not as clear and clean cut as David and Goliath. It almost mm-hmm. sounds like this is about private vengeance. Hey, God, they ripped out my two eyes, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let me avenge myself upon the Philistines. Um, and yet, then he grasps the two middle pillars, uh, as the scriptures say, on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines, which I believe uh, is properly understood that he is saying that he 
is doing this not just for himself, but he is fulfilling his role as judge and earthly savior and deliverer of his people against the Philistines. That was his commission by God, that he would begin the salvation of Israel from out from under the domination of the Philistines, which did not get completed for another couple of generations. But the point being is, is that his personal issue with the Philistines and what they've done to him is totally entangled with um, God's uh, commission to him of what he should do and what uh, what should be happening. And and I think Samson offers us uh, a good thing to think about because we, we are, we, we are all flawed people and we all sin. And we, we, you know, if we're going to fall off the horse, of uh, of these different temptations on how to think of our enemies, it's usually going to be wrapped up in a very personal situation. And so Samson has to here, obviously, sort out his heart. You know, is it wrong that the Philistines ripped out his eyes? Yes, obviously so. Are the Philistines his people's enemies? Is he commissioned by God to fight and defeat them? Absolutely. But how much of mm -hmm. this is just his drive for personal self-centered vengeance and how much is this um, acknowledging the will of the Lord? And I believe him saying, let me die with the Philistines. This is a selfless act. That's why uh, many of the church fathers and the Lutheran fathers and scholars to this day say that Samson is a Christ figure. There he, there he is. He's dying with his arms outstretched, sacrificing himself for the sake of his people. Obviously, yeah not as Christ did, uh, atoning for the sins of the world, but in an earthly way. And I can't believe that God would have granted this prayer if this was him just wrapped up in personal vengeance. I mean, obviously, no prayer of ours is ever perfect because we have sinful hearts. But when it is done in true faith um, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, then God, uh, of course, will uh, answer those prayers and maybe not always with a yes, but here he does. And I can't believe that God would answer this prayer with a yes. If he was just doing it for private vengeance, you know, Samson knows that he is, uh, that he's messed up. He's really, he's really screwed a lot of stuff up and now he wants to do the right thing. And so God grants him strength uh, one last time. And uh, it says he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. His greatest victory was that day. And there his, his, uh, you know, his personal enemies, he was able to see not just as them, but also as the enemies of God. And like you said before, his confession is wrapped up in this too, I believe as well. Yeah. So, Taking into account the fact that we need to be, I suppose, mindful or careful about how we make use of imprecation. I mean, how much is this kind of going back to what Luther said to Melanchthon, I think, you know, sin boldly, but believe all the more boldly. I mean, yeah. can't we end up becoming so paralyzed by this analysis of whether or not we're doing it from a pure heart that we end up doing nothing at all? So yeah, how should we view a, this? Well, to examine your heart, but not get lost in it either. I mean, yeah. uh, to make the distinction between justice and right judgment and personal vengeance as best as you can. You know, you know the, the little kid in the neighborhood or at school or with a friend, you know, 
they're arguing over something and then one kid wallops the other, right? You know, and of course his immediate reaction, well, maybe it's to run and cry, but maybe it's to pound the other kid. And, you know, that's why you got to talk to your kids about this beforehand and not just say, never fight, never defend yourself, never hit anyone. Again, you know, kind of school marm advice is absolutely horrible when it comes to conflict because it doesn't give due import to the issues of justice. It only is trying to stop conflict and Mm -hmm. this life is full of conflict and it's good to know how to escalate instead of going from zero to 60 always, you know, because if you just tell a child, not just male children, but female children too, and uh, men and women who are adults, if you only just tell them, always bottle it up, never, never uh, push back, uh, there's never uh, a time for violence or for hard words or anything like that, that's, that, that's insane. That's not biblical. And what happens is they just bottle it up until what? They explode and they don't know yeah. how to actually escalate and try to work things out. So you want to talk to your kid about saying, well, I mean, you know, you know, it would not be commensurate for you to just pound the crud out of some other kid who shoved you down on the playground. If you can work it out peaceably, then great. You know, live with live in peace with with others as uh, I can't remember that verse, but as far mm-hmm. as you are able. Well, I mean, it only takes one to start a war, right? So, I mean, so you, you hope for the best and you prepare for the worst and you learn how to defend yourself because God wants us to defend our life and our property and our possessions and our neighbors around us. And you 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 preemptively think through these things as best as you can. Obviously, you can't prepare for everything. But uh, again, I mean, I think we've seen it in schools and I think that's why there are you know, all of these very violent incidences that go to severe injury or weapons when it used to be understood, you know, sometimes you just got to let those two boys fight it out and you're ready Mm -hmm. to stop it from going too far. But you also recognize that there is this issue of uh, standing up for yourself and looking out uh, about justice, you know, an older brother, taking care of a younger sister or a little kid brother or something like that. And instead of trying to have this pietistic understanding of we're all doormats for Jesus and you can never be angry and we're always going to be nicey nice and all this kind of stuff. No, we live in a sinful world. We got to think through how we're going to deal with these things. And everyone is always judging. Everyone's always judging. The only question is, are you judging in accordance with the word of God or not. And we do, uh, and we should learn how to judge in accordance with the word of God and think through what are appropriate responses. And yes, there's a time and a place to say, this is an enemy of everything that is good and true and beautiful. This is an enemy of God. And uh, God, please change this evil person's heart and mind, convert his soul. But whether you do that or not, and whether he receives it or not, stop him from the wicked evil that he's doing. We beg you. Any final thoughts or things that we didn't touch on that we missed along the way? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a a question that, and a confession uh, 
that I meant to uh, look up a good example from uh, you know the words of Jesus, uh, whether it be prayers or whether it be um, preaching about uh, something imprecatory. And I do not have a great example because it was on my list of things to do and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, I never got around to it. So can you think of a good a time when Jesus prays uh, with an imprecatory aspect? Uh, well, I mean, he sort of quotes Psalm 69 from the cross when he says, I thirst, and then it's immediately quotes that psalm after that. Right. Um, so you have that, but that's not very clear. Yeah, I mean, Psalm um, 69 is quoted like seven times in the New Testament. I mean, yeah. zeal for, you know, the house of the Lord shall consume me. I mean, I, I would say that would be a, 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 a good example, but it's not, it, I, I was trying to look for another one that wasn't connected to one of the imprecatory psalms from well, I mean, you do it's you do have the high priestly prayer in John where he's calling for them to be kept safe and separated from the world. Yeah. So it's not as, you know, it's not blot out people from the book of life, but in that sense it is uh, you know, a call for protection for those who are his own. Yeah. Or, or at least yeah. stopping um I mean, he gives this the Lord's Prayer, too, to yeah. deliver us from evil. Yeah. But nothing else really jumps out at me. Yeah, and I meant to look more deeply into this, and I didn't. Because, I mean, obviously, Jesus says, pray for your enemies, and then he also says, um, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I guess I, 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 guess I wanted to look, uh, I mean, I, I think that it is obviously enough that he uh, gives us the Lord's prayer and he quotes Psalm 69 about the zeal of the house of the Lord shall consume you. And I, I guess though, um, I imagine that some people would say, but look at the, the difference of emphasis from the old Testament and the new Testament. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I don't think that there is such a difference in emphasis between the old and the new, but precisely with Jesus, he consistently talks about how he has come not to judge the world, but to save it at that point. You know what I mean? Even though he says things that are obviously uh, judgments. So, I mean, I think that's wrapped up in his his mission. But especially in the last uh, week in Jerusalem, I, 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 I think I need to go back and, and look more closely about uh, how, he, how he speaks about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking too, uh, you do have the woes. Oh, yeah. You're right. And and then you have you do have how well just in this past Sunday, well, Lent three's gospel reading, your sons will judge you. So you do have yeah. you do have some of that. Well, um, and also in the, the woes in particular. Well, yeah, you're right about the woes, but also like the parables um, where it's and and you know, cast him out. You know what I mean? Jesus is talking mm -hmm. about Judgment Day when they're cast out into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, or when he when he has the it would be better for never to have been born, or it would have been better. Some of his argumentation like that. I mean, I'm thinking there particularly of the son of perdition, but yeah. Well, and and <clears throat> I think it it goes back to his his precise mission. Yes, he speaks 
about the coming judgment, and he judges certain things as sinful plenty of times, but he is there to save and not pronounce a judgment in the same sense that he will when he returns. I mean, you know, you you think about, uh, you know, the sheep and the goats. I mean, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal mm-hmm. fire prepared for the devil and his anger and his angels. Um, so I, I think it is there, even though we don't see it as, as explicit, but that's why we've got Psalm 69. I mean, that's a messianic Psalm. That's, 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 that's what Jesus is. Uh, you, you, I mean, that's describing Jesus and his prayers to his heavenly father. Yeah. So I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time, Ramirez. Always a pleasure yeah. to have you on, and uh, I'm sure I'll find some arcane topic that uh, <laughs> really riles people up in the future for you to uh, help us uh, help us out with. Yeah, sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, take care. You too. Bye.